Okay, hello and welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll wait for a couple of minutes for others to join and uh, till then I'll play a clip from the film. Sana, thank you so much. Alok also, um, I'll keep it very short. Um, I am not the star of the show here. Um, the co-stars, I think, are Sana and Alok. And of course, the main uh, star is Shahin. Shahin, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us, but also more importantly, most importantly, for, um, for letting us share the film and screen it, um, and also for making it. It's such a spectacular piece of filmmaking, I think. Um, you know, um, I watch it over the weekend and the music, especially for me as a, as someone who listens to a lot of music has stuck in my head. That passage that Sana just played for me was probably the, the most memorable one in the entire film, but so much else of it as well. Thank you for making such a spectacular film. Thank you for being here with us. Um, to all of you who are joining us for Screen South Asia, thank you for watching. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Sana, Alok, back to you. Thank you, Roman. Um, I'm going to quickly introduce Shaheen. Uh, it's so wonderful to have you here. Shaheen Dil Riaz was born in Dhaka in 1969. He spent most of his childhood in a small village on the coast of Bay of Bengal until his parents sent him to military academy. Shaheen moved to Berlin in the early 90s to study art history and theatrical science. He later graduated in cinematography from the University of Film and Television, Conrad Wolf, Potsdam, Balsberg. Uh, Sand and Water, the film we're discussing today, was his graduating film. Now based in Berlin, Shine works as an independent filmmaker, director, and writer in Europe and Asia. Almost all his films have been screened, uh, have been released as feature-length uh, documentaries in German uh, movie theaters, and most were broadcast on German national television as well. These include The Happiest People, 2005, The Critically Acclaimed Iron Eaters, 2008, which we hope to screen at Screen South Asia someday, uh, uh, which earned the uh, renowned Grimay Award. Um, more successful films followed, such as Quran Kinder, 2009, The Networker, 2011, 
and Distance Future 2015, among others. One of Shane's latest films, Bamboo Stories 2019, won the Ram Bahadur Trophy for the best film at Film South Asia 2019 as well. Welcome, Shane. Over to you, Sana. Thanks, Alok. And to those who have joined us, we're also live on Facebook. So if you would like to participate in the discussion and ask questions directly to the to Shaneen, you can either send us your question on Zoom chat, or Facebook comments, or uh, you can directly ask uh, Shaheen on Zoom and we will pass on the mic. So let's begin. Uh, Shaheen, in the beginning of the film, you mentioned that uh, people would refer to you like, don't be a chola. So what does it actually mean and what led you to want to tell the story of chola? Yeah. First of all, thank you very much for showing the film and inviting me for this conversation. Um, I really feel privileged to be uh, uh, in in association with Himal because um, many of my films have been shown in Himal Film Festival and Film, film South Asia. And uh, unfortunately, I was never be able to be there personally. But uh, but for that, my films were shown, and I'm really very grateful to uh, have this access through you, through your initiative. And this is also a wonderful chance to be in touch with the audience in such a wide range. And showing this film, most of all, after such a long time, as 24 years back, that we shot the film. And uh, it's really uh, amazing to, to see that uh, it still resonates and people feel the importance of this film and the relevance of this film. Yeah, um, this... This personal note uh, at the beginning of the film, and I think in the entire film, there is a, a sense that I have a kind of personal relationship to this, to this content. And the thing that I mentioned is a kind of uh, myth that existed, and I think it still exists about the Chauras, um, that they are kind of different kind of people and uh, the hostility that uh, the, the nature creates in this life, um, in this, even you in this uh, landscape, river landscape, has something, of course, to do with these people, or it has an impact on the people. And that's why people think that uh, there must be something special about these people. There are prejudices, of course, because Mm, the mainland people always, of course, um, grab with their interest. Uh, they try to settle things when a dispute comes about land, and it's a big issue, the land issue. So the question is, how do the Chauras solve this problem? So there are myths, there are stories that Chauras actually uh, get violent when they want to take uh, possession of a, of a land, piece of land. But it was probably very, very old myth, very, very old stories which existed. But nowadays it is not at all an issue of dispute because everybody has document and everyone can really even say, this is my piece of land, uh, even if you see only water everywhere. So, but still this social um, phenomena existed and the mainland people do think that Chauraza, these are the cliches. Chauraza may be violent. Chauraza are not really quote unquote civilized. And as you can see also in the conversation of the couple, uh, that comes this uh, image of Chauras a little bit in foreground. And of course, the vice versa, uh, the Chauras has also their prejudice about the land, mainland people. And um, in the conversation in the boat, just before this song that you have shown, was also clear that people do see. Uh, the mainland people in different eyes or they have different experience about the habits and uh, characteristics of the mainland people. So these are the things that existed and still exist among the people uh, about the Chauras. That's what I wanted to point it out. But this reference to the childhood was exactly what I heard also uh, because this misbehave, this rudeness is kind of a brand mark of the Chauras which is not at all true. I mean, I experienced those people since uh, two decades, more than two decades. I have also shot another film last uh, last year, uh, 2021. Um, and it was really amazing to be there and this friendly and cooperative and nice people uh, living in this special geographical context. 
thank you, Shane. Um, I so pretty early on in the film, around the eighth, ninth minute, we are told that like the Jamna didn't always behave like this, and like at one point, they, someone says like the river used to be so far away, and now it changes course in the last twenty-five years or so. Um, and uh, so, like, do you know, like, could you say a bit more about what possibly led the river to change its course? Well, that's a difficult question because it's really a geographical and very uh, specific uh, question for experts who knows about the river behaviors. But what I heard during my research and during my shooting in all these years, again and again, people who are so-called river engineer and geologists, they all say it's nothing surprising because Jamuna or Bamaputra itself, it's a... Um, it's a, the character of this river is like that. It's a flat river, it's not deep, and it moves depending on the water flow. And of course, the sediment and the, and the, um, uh, the art quality of the particular areas. And it is flowing since centuries um, in a very flexible way. That means it might change its course or it might moves around on, on its track. And that's why, as you can see in satellite photos, it's really huge, very wide. And if the water uh, quantity rises and the force of the uh, current rises, then automatically it erodes in both the sides, depending which part it's really having the force and which part is the mud or the earth um, is soft or do have resistance and try to hit the other side. But this is a typical character of Brahmaputra uh, in the entire uh, path, especially after it left um, uh, Nepal um, or China and, and enters India, the flatland, till the <clears throat> Bay of Bengal. So this is a characteristic that existed and it is not really a specific reason why it is moving uncertain year and devastating some of the parts. But um, there are, of course, reason, particular reason in some areas like this river, uh, this bridge that was built, and they had to force the river to flow in a certain way. Um, so the, the reason they used to hear um, on the spot is this embankments is one of the reasons why it got worse, um, especially in this area, just before the bridge. And also there are some cities like Sirajganj or Bhuapur. Um, all these cities, they are protecting their land, of course, their territory. And this is all the huge embankment projects, which is good for the mainland people, of course, but it has some consequences and then the water force try to go in certain different direction and make a make a branch out of the main river. So this is typical character of Brahmaputra that happens, and the bridge building, embankment building, of course, enhances this character. Uh, so uh, Shine, I will share a clip from a film, and then wanted to refer to that while asking the next question. Yeah. Ubatre, but it's Abazabar. Eta Ashley Gorunda Amra Dehina, the Gorona Sotuda Marite, Palite, Panin Maligasin. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the mysticism element of your case. Like in the film, you, uh, you know, refer to Hindu mythology. Uh, then in this particular section, uh, he also refers to a prophet, uh, Fizil, uh, where he says that, you know, they, he has workers and then they dig soil from fields. So, and towards the end also, like there's a whole sequence where the fakirs dance and they are doing better. So could you uh, talk a little bit about significance of these sections? you're muted. Yeah, sorry. Um, as you marked at the beginning of the film, it starts with a, with a meet, uh, Meet of Brahmaputra. Um, 
and I think it's interesting to have this connotation in the film through this story of this guy, because I didn't know him, of course. Um, and it, I think it is really interesting again and again for me to leave, to experience this among the people who try to have these kind of stories and meets really very vivid and very living in their culture, in their day-to-day -day life. As you could hear, he, he was saying that it, I haven't seen it, but it's true. Uh, and that's really interesting statement. Um, what is actually truth for them? Or what does he mean that it's true, but I haven't seen it? I think these myths and stories, these kind of stories, and also this spirituality that you can feel through the songs that of the Fakirs, this is a, something that exists in, in many, many areas, many cultures, and especially people who are very much affected by nature or very much connected to nature. It might be a mountain, it might be sea people, it might be forest or it might be river. Um, they kind of um, have the necessity and an art to have an explanation, but it is not a rational explanation. It's, an, it's a kind of, how does it make sense that we are having these calamities or this fortune or whatever it is. So they make stories out of it or the story creates or story emerges. And all these epics, I mean, also the Mahabharata and all these things, I, I think they, they are the necessary element of the living culture of these people. And I think this is the main aspect of these stories and of these myths. But to, to find out, um, scientific explanation for this kind of event that nature take place, they are unable to, or they are not really, they don't have the vast knowledge and, and uh, possibility like a scientist or whatever. So they have their explanation in these stories, in these myths. And this is something very essential and very um, utmost part of the reality. Uh, it is for us, maybe for the, for the mainland people or people who don't live in this spirituality, kind of, you know, not very serious thing, but for them, it is it is something very serious and they confront it that way. Uh, thanks, Shani. Uh, so I will play another clip from the film. Woman China by by brother Abteshazan Grambashi. Chore John Mustan. Chore Zonoi Maya. Judiya Chor Kostupai. Ijo Bosha Masu Kostupai. condition. হ্যাঁ Thank you. Thank you, Sana. I really enjoyed that scene. I watched it a couple of times. Um, some of the Chara people really seem to be, or at least claim to be happy. You know, this is where I want to be, this air conditioning for me, where they are. And, you know, but then there are other scenes where it feels like, you know, they've also surrendered to the situation, to the river, to the sand. Mm -hmm. And um, like perhaps they're trying to make the best of a terrible situation and want to be happy when however they can. Uh, but why do you think like that sense of resilience in a sense, but also, you know, the, that contradiction that exists, why do you think that exists? And like, what, what is your analysis of like how they feel about themselves and where they live? Well, I think it is, uh, for me, it's mainland people, if I call myself like that, um, it's difficult to really grasp the real um, feeling, how they really feel. I can only speculate, I can only 
have a kind of impression, speculation about those people because I observed them quite a long time. And I also, as I say, uh, 2021 made another film on this in this area. And I have the impression that the resilience that they have, it is actually nothing, nothing unusual. It is, it is also, you can find it in the coastal area, for example, in the mountain area. Um, I think people on the one hand surrender to the nature. On the other hand, they actually in a battle with the nature. And this is a kind of balance that they try to maintain in, in their life, where sometimes they try to conquer the force of the nature, or at least make his space and take his things to survive. But on the other hand, he lets uh, or she lets this nature to to reveal or to to rule over uh, over their life. And this is, I think, that is my very personal feeling when I observe them. And this is the beauty of this um, this game that they are playing with each other, you know. And it belongs also to these um, stories, to this explanation or to this exaggeration of things. For example, he's saying it's wonderful here, it's beautiful, it's uh, comfortable. Partly it is true, but this is not the real, uh, I mean, the complete truth. But still, he is thankful because at last, at least, uh, the whole existence of these people actually dependent on this riverbed because because the sediment they can grow uh, um, plants, they grow, they grow paddies, they, they cultivate there. They really don't have to go anywhere else um, for their basic needs. If you have a little bit of land, if you are lucky that it comes out of the water now and then, then you can actually survive there because it grows so well. You could see in the second film that we made where I let them speak, especially about the agricultural part of it. And it's really amazing that this new protagonist who is just 33 year old, and he's actually the nephew of this, of this um, man that is, who's walking with his wife on the riverbed. And he actually, even more adamant to stay on the jar uh, than this uh, this person. So I could see really the generation after generation, this feeling, this emotional connection to this land or to this river is extremely visible. And this bond is never being really uh, loosened. Or I, I don't think it will ever go away because this 33 year old guy He's educated well enough. He could actually go to the city and get a job. And he had a job, but he quit this job and he loves to be a farmer and with heart and soul. So these kind of characters do exist in these char areas. And they are actually in a kind of, not harmony, but in a kind of arrangement with the nature that they are living in. And this is not really a romanticizing image. It is a lot of struggle, it's a lot of fight. But it's still it's a relationship, and relationship is always with turmoil, even among the nature and human being. Uh, thanks, Shaheen. Uh, we would also like to understand the role of state in Char Island. So, if you could comment on that, like one of the reasons is also because you know in the film uh, there's a woman who says you know people like you do nothing and only take pictures all the time sort of referring to the camera and the media of illusion. So could you comment on that? Um, I, I acoustically, I didn't understand the question properly. Could you please repeat it? So I, I wanted to understand the role of state, like what do they do in order to help people of Chagas? Because in the film, there is a section where a woman points at the camera and she says, like, you know, people like you do nothing and take pictures all the time. Sort of referring mm. to the camera mm. and media usually come and take pictures and go. So could yeah. you comment on that? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, really true. It's still true because the media and the government apparatus come only in the chore area when there is a problem, when there's a conflict, when there is something serious is going on. For example, uh, recently, there was an issue about um, um, 
sand uh, grabbing, which was done according to Chauras with a pretext of they want to deepen the deepen the river um, so that it can flow properly, um, which is really um, not not the real reason because taking away the sand from the river, especially in Jamuna, that means you're actually taking away the land of these people because this is not only sand that just randomly lying there, it is the uh, it is the art that will be cultivated after the water is gone. And the government just ignored it and they implemented or are partly implemented their idea and we know through the research that actually the main reason why they dig around in Jamuna is basically as a huge syndicate uh, who are selling this sand for construction purpose. So the real issues that are being taken care of or should be taken care of are actually the people themselves, they are taking care. The only thing that the government does regularly is collect the taxes because even if the land are underwater, they have their document, they always have to pay tax. Otherwise, government will uh, seize those land. And recently, a weird idea came to ensure electric supply on the chores, which is for many people not really understandable because it is dangerous to to bring direct electric, electric line on the chart because it's middle of the river and it can erode anytime. There is no guarantee and it will be really dangerous to have this high voltage cable in the water and um, nobody can guarantee it. But the initiative has been done and the pillars are already there, um, but the electricity is not running yet properly or not the entire area. But the other solution could be actually the solar energies, which is very, very effective for the Chauras. They privately uh, managed to buy these solar panels and they can live with these uh, power sources very well. But for these kind of things, there are not that much support from the government. So it's really not clear whether they want to, to to, to uh, want these, these people having a better life with some facilities that would be really effective for them. But when um, the flood comes and the relief material has to be distributed, then the government or the NGOs come there and distribute some help and support. But for a, for a, for a long-term solutions of some problems, some things that should be taken care, uh, it's not enough help from the state, that's pretty sure. Um, thank you. Um, I So I think you already touched on this a little bit about land because we you, you earlier brought up land when we spoke about, you know, resilience. Um, but uh, there is this like, idea of like inheritance and like people do talk about inheritance of land and ownership of land in the film and many have lost parts of their land but they come back when the water recedes like you also mentioned earlier some people also build their house on somebody else's land could you talk a little bit more about the idea of land ownership for the chauras and you know that that need to uh the politics and power impact of that ownership you know and maybe mm -hmm. also how they're exploited mm -hmm. well the land ownership uh the attitude towards land ownership also changed in the last 20, 30 years. Um, earlier, it was not that easy to prove that belongs to you. This land is, uh, you need document, which is a paper. And there were cases where these uh, documents were burned and allegedly because of an accident, but then later came out and that was deliberately done. So these kind of things happen and that was really vulnerable. But nowadays it's all digitized. You can really have this document somewhere. Um, if you want, you can, you can collect it and you can prove that your land is there or the ownership could be um, handed over to the next generation. This is not a problem anymore. But earlier it was much more difficult. And on the other hand, there was also not a big issue about owning the land 20, 30 years back. 
people were more flexible. They, I mean, there were enough land there and people were not that scary about uh, losing the ownership. For example, if you allow some person who's not belong to your family and his house is uh, demolished by the river erosion. So the family could um, build a house there and it's still it is possible. But uh, the, the scary thing nowadays is people think that if you let him stay too long, he might claim that this is his own land. And there's also some laws that would allow it, which is of course have his reason, but I think this context of human relationship that has changed. This trust that I will allow my neighbor to stay in my land is not that uh, secure anymore. You know, people are scary and that's why they try to avoid it or they try to not too easily allow somebody to stay there. I could observe during my last shooting, this kind of sensitivity that growed. And there's also um, a tendency of selling the land. That means selling the sand, you know, it just they just grab the sand out of it and sell it. It's also a, a development in the mainland that many farmers don't see any point of cultivating anymore because he can sell the mud of this land and um, get a huge amount of money at least for next two years. You will probably not be able to uh, cultivate on this land, but he can have a good amount of money just to selling this mud out of this land. So these kind of tendencies grew and the relationship to the land ownership and dealing with it among the people has changed a lot. Yeah, that's my personal observation recently. Thanks, Shaheen. Uh, in one of the, there was a research paper basically uh, on your film, there's another uh, uh, tale of Sundarbans and Silvari, like three films from Bangladesh. So if there was a quote by you where you say that you don't consider sand and water in the category of environment documentary. So could you please elaborate that? Well, I, 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 I made, I made film basically to explore something. In every film of mine, it's a kind of journey. I, either I want to go to a particular area where I've never been, or I want, especially because I know this area, or especially I know these people, it's actually my own personal journey to explore something, either to meet these people or to, to experience the relationship, human relationship among the people and with the nature. Uh, but nature is always there. I mean, human being is also part of nature. So I never actually considered uh, this journey to be specifically exploring environmental film in that sense. I mean, 20 years back, it has also a different definition than today. Uh, on that context, I used to say that uh, it's not a typical environmental film. I actually wanted to make a film because I was personally uh, interested to know about these people, how they live and actually spend time with them. And I always try to emphasize that that actually my personal gain from this adventure of making a film is, is huge for my own life. Um, and I get 90% of it for my personal private experience and the 10% I can probably put it in the film. So that's a huge um, privilege for me. And you can call this film whatever you like, uh, environmental film or anthropological film or film about uh, the, the working world. Uh, some people think that I always come again and again in, in a sphere of working people who are working in the nature or with the nature or against the nature. That could be also, but this is all kind of coincident. I actually follow my curiosity and interest and it comes from all possible sources. Thank you. Thank you, Chain. Um, so this was your first film, uh, right? Your first feature length film at least. And uh, I'm sure, you know, you probably work differently now than you used to, but still referring to the camera work and storytelling, how exactly did you plan the shoot? Who all were you in touch with back home? 
uh, in Bangladesh and how long did like the, what was the filming process like and how long did it take? The research of this film was, um, from my side, was completely zero. I couldn't research especially for the film as a filmmaker, but I had a support from an anthropologist, German anthropologist, who have been working on this area for quite a long time. Anna Schmuck is her name. She was uh, also part of the project, contributed uh, through her expertise, and that was a great help that I could uh, utilize for the film. Um, but as a filmmaker, uh, I was actually not prepared to shoot the film the way I shoot nowadays because I was a cinematography student that I was not really supposed to make my own film. It was just my own wish. And my professor and the department allowed me to do that, but they were not really expecting a completely edited film. They said, well, you can try, but it's not important that you edit a film and it should be a complete film. It's enough if you just collect some footage and show your cinematographic expertise and what you learned and uh, that would be enough. Uh, but I was ambitious and I wanted to make film out of it. And the basic attitude for me was really that, that I was a very enthusiastic cinematographer who was observing everything. And the director was not really present. I mean, director uh, who should actually be conscious about what he is doing, what he's uh, going to, how he's going to edit or what is the plan, nothing was there. I was actually a cinematographer who was, yeah, uh, who was allowed to do anything he wants because there is no director, uh, more or less. So that was the material that I collected. It was three weeks in the monsoon and three weeks in winter. It was 1998, monsoon, uh, I think it was August, July, August uh, in this time span, and then February 1999. Uh, and then we came back with the material and as we started editing with my German editor at that time, he used to study in the school, uh, film school as well. He couldn't speak a single word Bengali, so I had to translate everything. And uh, But he was very patient and really go through the entire material, but it took very long time to edit the complete film. And uh, during the editing, I could feel that uh, that was really not very clever uh, to shoot just randomly. And my editor was also struggling to give in structure to the film. But the advantage was because there was no structure in advance, uh, because there was no real guideline to to follow the shooting, um, we had a, a very interesting atmosphere in the film. You don't have a linear story that, that, that follows a protagonist or a development. You just actually have this river and the changes in these two particular period of time. And you have some, some excerpts out of the life of these people that, that who are living there, Not, nothing else. But still, uh, we made through some kind of arrangement a structure that that that's a kind of flow that goes till the end, and you can feel uh, that the attention can be can be grabbed uh, can be can be caught till the end of the film. So it followed. Although the television people who saw the film later was that was not enough. They said it's too loose. There's no real structure. But uh, cineasts uh, did like this film very much, especially the festivals. And also um, many Bengali audience could connect to this lucid structure of the film because that's the, that's the life actually in, in this area. There is no particular um, structured timeline that you could follow um, if you live there or if you experience this life. <clears throat> so that's why it was, it was kind of, adaptable, compatible with the experience of the people, but it was not uh, a kind of narrative structure that normally I have in, in my later works. And it took in total four years to finish the film. Oh. Wow. But with gaps because in the, 
given time we shot another uh, other films my editor has to do other other jobs as well so it was very slow the work uh in the film like the like we also showed in the beginning of the session we included that song and then that person also talks about that when he visits from a child to child <coughs> he talks about he talks about found songs which he picks up mm-hmm. when he you know visits different places so were these other histories something that you intended to collect or feature in the film from the outset or was this something that you encountered while filming and when you met people and you start shooting it was actually uh, the situation itself i was there i didn't have any clue uh, how i going to shoot or edit the film but i knew that i am curious about this life and these moments so i had a sensitivity sensitivity as a cinematographer to to take the moments that i think it's important and it tells something about these people and this area that was the only criteria that i had so i was collecting material and uh, through this attitude it came uh, i think 35 hours of material all together winter and monsoon and we made the film out of it so this collection tendencies came actually out of necessity out of the situation that i was in uh thank you shane you mentioned uh, a new film on the uh, char and the chara people uh, that you made just few years ago in 2019 uh, so could you tell us a little bit about that film and also your experience going back there and making that film yeah this time the film was commissioned by arte arte cdf and they have a series of um, particular documentaries under the co name of wonder of the world um, it's a kind of exaggerated name that actually focuses on some particular areas um uh where people live a kind of unusual life um, it could be nature uh, condition it could be also just the lifestyle of those people so they are interested about sand and water they have seen sand and water and they say that maybe you can make a tv compatible formatted documentary on the same topic because the film is only 20 years old or more than 20 years old and it was of course a, a cinematic work which is more for cinemas but we want a formatted documentary but on the same content and you have to follow the the standards that we have in the format so i think it's interesting approach and i never did something like that but i wanted to try um i must say i don't like it that much because of this text always they want explanation they want information and less observation and less personal i mean not at all personal it shouldn't be at all present in the film and that's the way i had to do this film and i was shooting shooting in 2021 and at monsoon 2021 and then beginning of 2022 and uh, i went exactly the same area but this ruli para this 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 village was completely gone i mean the people came to another place because the the whole area that we shot in sandal water was not exist anymore on this spot but the people were some people moved to the uh, mainland some people are still living there and interesting thing for me was the communication had changed a lot because people um have motor motorbikes now on the sand uh, they have um uh, solar energies for running television fridge and everything i mean they can do actually anything also there are uh, protagonists in the film who um do outsourcing jobs via internet uh, sitting on the chair um and driving his uh, running his laptop with a solar panel uh, and the electric connections is going on i mean the electric um, electric supply at least initiated by the government so people are not that isolated anymore that they were in the 90s or beginning of 2000 and now they are really very much connected to the mainland 
it is not an issue anymore to, for example, get people to the mainland or people coming to the uh, jars. It is still, of course, a struggle, uh, depending on how much water you have on the on the river, or how much um, dry sand you have on the on on the surface. Uh, and the agriculture had cha hadn't changed that much because people are doing um, like they always did, um, trying to cope with the rhythm of the river. And interesting thing was this time we didn't have uh, flooding experience that much. People were actually waiting for flood because if flood don't come, the sediment don't uh, get to the soil. And also the grass grows on the new chores and they have to um, eliminate this grass to cultivate on this land again. So it is more difficult. So flooding is actually necessary for them as well. And also for the communication, certain time watering, all this rhythm has changed through the climate change. You can also see the effect of climate change directly on the choras or the rhythm of these choras. And the heat um, temperature rose extremely high. People are complaining really themselves. So there are a lot of changes they could see in, in both, both the context, uh, the context of the climate change and also in the context of the general lifestyle and, and the so-called civilizational movement that, that took place in through these last two, three decades. That's fascinating. Thank you. Thanks, Shaheen. Yeah, so like in recent years, like there's a lot of visual content that is being created on climate change. And given the point that the global south is the most impacted by climate change, especially countries like Bangladesh, India, Pakistan. So like as someone who like shot this sand and water like quite a years back and now you're shooting film on Char again. Like, do you have any tips and tricks on how to shoot stories on climate change in South Asia and what should one keep in mind like, like you know, covering stories on the people there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's a problem um, of shooting films uh, in certain issues. Um, you know, people in the coastal areas complains that uh, there are a lot of documentary filmmakers uh, comes from BBC or Channel 4 or Al Jazeera or some other uh, broadcasting companies. And they try to hear a certain story. They have this narrative of climate change, salinity in the coastal area. I am giving just an example. And the people said, I was in Sundaban, I was in coastal area, I was looking for other things, but they told me that you know, the situation is here, salinity is one problem, but more difficult problem is the industrialization of, uh, of, of, of shrimps, of, um, of this spawn uh, culture that is that rose in 80s and it got really devastated entire area. So people are actually more interested to talk about that, but since the project or uh, the, commissioned work comes from these broadcasters and they want to actually cover the story on the context of climate change, they don't want to hear those things. They want to hear actually, this is the climate change, the reason that spoiled our soil and uh, as a farmer, I cannot survive anymore. But the farmers themselves would actually also want to say that it's the industrialization that is going on there. This whole huge range of um, pollen industry, prone industry that is growing there from, from the 80s actually changed the entire scenario, entire life of those people. So there is a problem that people come there to with the narrative, they want to actually hear the things that they need to cover the story. This is one problem. The other problem is people are um, scary about to talk about certain things because of power structure on the spot, you know, even in the char areas, people were scary about talking about, uh, talking against this elect electrification that the government were running there or the um, river embankment or grabbing the sand from the river. All these issues is, is always a, a problem to talk with the protagonists openly. But I think 
it is uh, important to bypass these kind of direct issues and direct narratives. I think if we concentrate on the life of the people, and if you observe them, you can automatically see what's really happening. You don't need to blame anybody directly. And I also had this experience with the shipbreaking industry where we worked on the ship breakers and the working condition. There's also this environmental issue, of course, and uh, but we never talk about this in the film, but still the film was awarded several times in environmental festivals because of this environmental aspect of the film, but we never talked and spoke about it in the film, but you couldn't hide it, of course, it is visible everywhere. So I think this is the, the, these are the two things uh, that the filmmakers should be conscious about to address when they address this kind of uh, content uh, in, in audiovisual production. Thank you, Shane. Uh, moving on to our final question here, um, I have noticed that you perhaps have some sort of fascination with stories about water and rivers. They seem to attract you just looking at your work. Uh, like Bamboo Stories, which won the Rambala Trophy at FSA 19, Iron Eaters is about shipbreakers, and rivers seem to, rivers and water bodies altogether seem to draw you quite a bit. Do you, have you, is this something you've thought about? Is, do, do you know why that is? Well, I think it was not very conscious at the beginning, uh, but uh, I am like all the Bengalis, especially people living in this Delta, we are influenced by water and river, our food habit, our um, cultural um, base is actually nourished by river landscape. Even if we don't live close to the river, river is always there and the effect of the river is there, the sea, of course, also. So I think it is automatically uh, part of our life. We are not really conscious about how deep it's rooted in our culture. And I think it is a sign that it comes automatically, exposes automatically, either in literature or in paintings or whatever you do uh, in, in, in art form even in architecture um, that will reflect uh, the core of our living condition here in this delta and i think i'm not exception to that but of course through these several works again and again i came to river back or to water back again and again but i was not really intentionally looking for topics that has to do something with water it's just a lot of coincidence but anyway, uh, what is a coincidence? <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Shane. Uh, welcome. So, it was a pleasure. Yeah, so that, with that, we'll end our question or session. Uh, thank you, everybody who joined in. And thank you, Shaheen, uh, for giving us your time and agreeing for the session. Uh, a, recorded, a recording of this session will be uploaded on our YouTube channel and on the website as well. And uh, we'll soon announce our next film for August edition for Screen South Asia. So stay tuned for that. And thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank you all. Thank you so much. And what's the other film that uh, was published by Dasha Vele, uh, the Chauras? Oh, yes. Yes. Please do watch uh, the other films that other film on the Chaura that Shane has made uh, that released in 2022. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye.